Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Michaela Lamonic Arthur on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Student Activism and Curricular Change in Higher Education. This book is about the origins of three interdisciplinary concentrations or majors, or in some cases, departments. And they are women's studies, Asian American studies, and queer studies. When I was in college in the 80s, at least where I went to college, these things were in their infancy or did not exist. Today, one of them is ubiquitous, that is women's studies. Asian American studies, less so, but it is growing, I think, particularly where there are lots of Asian Americans. And then finally, queer studies is also growing. And I have to say, as someone who watched these disciplines grow in the 80s, I was always a bit curious about how they managed to find a place at the table in higher education. The number of disciplines has historically been reasonably stable, at least over the last hundred years, let's say. Um, These are, are new, though, and they are new in a curious way. They are really, as Michaela says, about identity. So it was with great interest that I had learned that Michaela wrote a book about the development of these disciplines, and she has a lot of really fascinating things to say about them. I really enjoyed talking to her today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Let me tell our listeners that we have Michaela Lamonic Arthur on the show today, and we'll be talking about her book, Student Activism and Curricular Change in Higher Education. The minute that Michaela wrote me about this book, I told her that I would interview her because it is a topic that I find absolutely fascinating as a historian. Uh, One of the things I learned a long time ago is that history as an academic discipline is actually quite new. Um, It really stems, at least in the United States, from the late 19th, early 20th century. And I think this shocks most people. It shocked me. And so when I hear debates about curricular change today and people say, things have always been the way they are, I say, well, no, they haven't. Uh, And in fact, curriculums are changing all the time. And uh, Michaela's done a terrific job of describing uh, uh, relatively recent, the last few decades, curricular changes. And she'll talk a little bit about the specific instances she deals with and uh, how those curricular changes came about. Uh, But before she does that, I would uh, appreciate it, Michaela, if you'd say a few words about yourself. Well, I grew up in New York State, about an hour north of New York City, and I went to college at Mount Holyoke College where I studied sociology. And in the course of my time as a sociology major, I studied social movements um, and social change and was very interested in that. I also was able to take a class in Asian American studies. It was one of the first courses that the college had offered in Asian American studies, and it had taken a lot of um, pressure from students to get the course offered. So I found that to be a really fantastic experience and um, started doing a lot of research on curricular change and student activism, which I carry with me into graduate school at New York University. And today I am an uh, assistant professor of sociology at Rhode Island College. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we have you on the show demonstrates that here on New Books in History, we know no disciplinary boundaries whatsoever. Let me just say that. Um, so how did you come to write the book? I guess you've already said a little bit about that, that it comes out of an experience that you had as a undergraduate. I'll, I'll tell you by yeah. uh, way of personal biography that when I was in college, this dates me a little bit, I don't think we had any of these courses. That is, I, I don't think we had Asian American studies courses, black studies courses, African American studies. I'm not sure we had that. Uh, we definitely didn't have anything like, I'm not quite sure what to call it, uh, of uh, 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 gay studies or anything like that. So in any event, yeah, explain to us a little bit about how you came to write the book. Well, it's, it's a kind of a long story. I was actually just teaching a research methods class yesterday and explaining to the students how when you choose a topic to do research about, you have to be willing to stick with it for a really long time. And I told <laughs> them that... <laughs> Depending on how you count, I've been working on this project since either the year 2000 or the year 2004, and the book just came out this year. Yeah. So their mouths all dropped open. Yeah, no, they, um, yeah, these projects eat your life, and people don't realize. Right. That, yeah. But um, I started, as I said, in college, I wrote um, an undergraduate honors thesis on student movements in uh, 1969 
1967 to 1969 at three liberal arts colleges. And I wasn't looking particularly at curriculum per se then, but at the same time as writing that paper, I also wrote a paper in another class about the Asian American movement. And so then when I got to graduate school and I started thinking about topics, this is what was still sticking with me. And so I spent a lot of time on Asian American studies. Most movements for their built around some kind of identity have ultimately had an aspect of that movement that has pushed for curricular change. That tendency is somewhat stronger among uh, Asian American activists. Uh, they have focused more on the curricular and knowledge issues than some other groups have. So that's a really central part of the movement, and that's really what I started looking at. And ultimately, that became the the core of my dissertation project, which looked at three disciplines, Asian American studies, women's studies, and queer LGBT studies. I have a footnote that's about a quarter of a page long about what to call that. <laughs> so I usually say queer studies because it's easier than yeah. saying all of those letters. Yeah. But um, I, there are many political debates about that. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> the dissertation uh, project was actually somewhat broader than the book and looked at many different explanations for curricular change, including activism, which was my original interest, but as well as explanations that have to do with the initiative of administrators or faculty through ordinary faculty governance processes, the role of the market, and the role of new institutionalism, which we might call, in more simple terms, peer pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, let, let's just launch into a discussion of this in general. As I said, uh, back in the 80s, um, I went to college here in Iowa uh, at a liberal arts college, and, and as far as I know, we did not have any of these disciplines. We may have. I don't know. I, I didn't. I was a. I studied Russian in college and uh, history. Um, yeah. What, what, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of what I'm trying to think of a general rubric for these kinds of classes? And I think I, they I used said to be identity called, studies. Identity sometimes. studies sounds great to me, actually. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins, the earliest origins of identity studies? The first field that really became organized uh, in this area was black studies, and that emerged in the later parts of the civil rights movement, particularly as black students started going to college in much larger numbers in the late 60s. Um, they, as they entered the college and university environment, they rapidly realized that there was nothing in the curriculum that reflected their history or their experiences. And they started demanding that programs like that be implemented, first courses and ultimately majors, to say, to say that this education was, was just entirely ignoring this new population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's been a lot of other work on black studies, which is why I didn't focus on it in my own work. It's kind of done. Um, but the disciplines that I've looked at emerged all a little bit after black studies and look back to that model of black studies kind of as a way of thinking about what they might want to do. Mm -hmm. So women's studies started to emerge in the early 1970s, first at San Diego State University. That was the first institution to create a program in women's studies, although there had been a few courses here and there at other institutions. The interesting thing, of course, in terms of women's studies is that women had been part of higher education for a long time. It wasn't a brand new phenomenon, but it still was the case that in the early 1970s, you would have found very little coverage of any of women's issues in any courses. They did not discuss literature by women. They did not discuss history involving women. Courses on psychology would have entirely excluded women's issues, except for maybe hysteria in an abnormal psych class. Mm -hmm. Um, and so women started to say, okay, where are we here? Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happened later with, with other fields. Asian American studies did actually start in, in 1969 at San Francisco State University, but in the, in the early 70s it was really only available in certain institutions in California. It wasn't until the 80s and in some cases even the 90s that it spread more to the, the middle and eastern parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And queer studies emerged in the 70s, but again, didn't really start spreading until the 90s. 
Mm-hmm. I see. And Asian American Studies, when did it emerge? So the first, the first program in Asian American Studies was formed in 1969 at San Francisco State. Oh, at San Francisco State. College. Yes, I think you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it was in the midst of the third world student strikes that mm-hmm. are pretty famous there, that they were all of the different groups of people of color on campus kind of got together to say that the college was not responsive to their needs and made a large number of demands, some of which were curricular in nature and some of which were about hiring, admissions, financial aid, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, it, one of the things that interested me was that these programs, uh, which seem to generally start, uh, you know, uh, in, in the, the tumult of the 60s or a little bit thereafter, um, why do they, I understand kind of why they started when they started, but, but why where? What about San Diego State University? That's not where you would predict. And one of the things I noted in the book is they don't seem to start at your Harvards and Yales. Right. That's one of the things that's actually very interesting about looking at curricular change in general. Institutions that are very elite don't necessarily feel the need to be as responsive to these kind of pressures, regardless of whether they come from activism or those other kinds of peer pressure or market forces, mm-hmm. because their position is much more insulated. They know if you're Harvard, you're going to get a nice crop of excellent students next year and for the foreseeable future, regardless of what you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a less prestigious institution, you are much more responsive to all sorts of demands, or otherwise you will probably go out of business. Mm-hmm. So can you, actually, this is a little bit disheartening, <laughs> because you like to think <laughs> these things are done because something tremendously new is discovered, or because there's a kind of political movement that forces right. recognition, but uh, obviously there's a lot more going on, and that's one of the things I should say I really like about your book, is it does take all of these things into consideration, and, and it is, you know, these decisions are, are um, you know, they exist in an institutional context, and in a broader political context, and then there's money, I mean, there's always money. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about San Diego State in particular? Do you, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, they, the San Diego State story is, is very much like the, the story of many of these institutions that people on campus started to say, hey, this is something we should do. Um, it actually may have been a, le- a bit less flashy than some of them. They didn't end up with the police closing down the campus the way they did in the third world student strikes. Um, but it really was a matter of people getting together and saying, we need this. This is what we need to be able to see women in the curriculum. Um, their program is actually very well respected still to this day, which is kind of interesting. Some of the early programs, you know, they, they're in too, they were maybe too innovative and mm-hmm. nobody really remembers them anymore. But they, they still have a very strong program there. Um, and um, it... it was because it was so early, it was there for us, all the other institutions later to look back and say, hey, we want this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the things to point out, though, especially with that mention of money, is that while institutions often did cite budgetary issues in the discussions about these disciplines, they are actually not that expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the differences in looking at this versus something like starting a new engineering program or um, nurse anesthetist degree or something. Yeah. You don't need new technology. Um, in many cases, there were already fa- many faculty on campus who would have been, who were very happy to teach courses in this field that could be cross-listed with their regular disciplines. Um, even creating an interdisciplinary major, the, main cost at many institutions is like one course release for someone to direct, to direct the program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. I know that, let me just give you an example from my own recent experience here. Uh, the administration, the provost and such decided that we should uh, become a powerhouse in, um, uh, what is it? What are they calling it? I want to say age studies or something. Yeah. This is, I, I don't know what word they used for it. I can't remember geriatrics or something. I don't know. Gerontology. Gerontology. I don't know. But they, so they, they said, we're going to ha- we're going to give you a bunch of lines. You know, we're going to create yeah. a bunch of lines in this because we think this is a great and growing field. It is growing in Iowa because Iowa is aging and so is the Midwest in right. general. Um, but there was quite a lot of resistance to this in my department. They said this is not right. a legitimate field. Uh, there's no research really. I mean, there is research being done in it, but, you know, it doesn't have the kind of stature. We, we don't like being a kind of put in a position right. of, 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 of forcing us to take a particular direction. Did you see this? Did you see a lot of this kind of thing in the, in the three cases you were talking about? Well, this actually was one of my favorite things about um, starting the project and starting to talk to people about it. So when I, would, when I was working on my, my initial research and I would talk to administrators, for instance, on job interviews about what I was doing, 
many of the administrators wanted to say, well, you know, isn't it the administration that gets to create new programs? <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, if you don't have anyone who wants to teach them and if you don't have anyone who wants to take the courses, that might not work so well. Mm-hmm. And then, then I would talk to faculty, and the faculty, even the sociology faculty who are uh, often well-informed about the way institutions work, would say, but don't we get to have new programs just because the faculty want them? I mean, we can just go to curriculum committee and propose a course. Mm-hmm. Right. And I would say, well, but if you don't have any students taking the course, are, they, are you going to keep offering it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody had a very good answer for that. Um, and, and so really the thing is there has to be some kind of demand mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. It so- might be... The, the real market demand, you know, in many of the, the professional fields, and that may be some of what's going on with this, this gerontology type thing in your institution, people think the demand is kind of there somewhere and all these students will come running to take the courses because they'll get great jobs and make lots of money, mm-hmm. which does often work. But that's really not going to happen with women's studies or Asian American studies. Yes, the graduates can get great jobs with their liberal arts training, but there's no job called women's studies. Right. No, exactly. So I, you know, that's a good thing you bring up. And I think that the administration was thinking along those lines, especially in in terms of uh, healthcare disciplines. And we do a lot of that here because we have a big med school uh, and they treat a lot of aging people. And that that certainly makes sense to me. But tell me a little bit about the way, um, so that these were, let me ask a question then. These were kind of demand driven. The students said to the faculty, we want to take these classes. Why don't you have them? Right. It was, it was often the students, it was sometimes the faculty, usually both mm-hmm. groups who had this interest. Mm-hmm. And the, they were then creating uh, some kind of a coalition of faculty and students organized in different ways, sometimes with one group more or less dominant than the other, to say, this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. I see. And then it, did they... I'm sorry, and then did they mount, uh, to interrupt, but did they, they mounted protests or did they go submit formal petitions or how did they get it done? In almost all of the cases that I looked at, and I looked at uh, six institutions and all three of the disciplines at each institution, although not all of the disciplines ultimately had pressure to develop them at all the institutions. So there are 14 cases uh, that I looked at of these disciplines emerging. And all but one of them, there was an active movement to make this happen. Mm-hmm. But what that did exactly was very different in different circumstances. At some institutions, they were mounting building occupations and threatening to shut the place down. <laughs> and having ultimately, uh, in one of my cases, there ended up being an inquiry by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as to whether any students' rights had been violated in the aftermath of a building occupation. On the other extreme, there were institutions where it wouldn't necessarily look at first glance like there was a movement, but it was still the case that the administration was not very interested in pursuing this kind of program, and the faculty and or students had to really work very hard behind the scenes to strategically develop proposals and collect information that would persuade the administration to maybe let them proceed and and really engineer a way to move forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, again, these cases seem to be largely sort of demand-driven in this case, and it shows that university administrations are somewhat responsive, which... I think many of my, fac- my, my colleagues would be surprised about. <laughs> but, but, you know, in, in each of these three cases, and I want to talk about their relative success in a second, uh, in each of these three cases, they, they went a certain distance. They became, at most, I think, um, interdisciplinary concentrations or majors. None of them ever become a department. There's no department. There's, there's, the women's studies became a department at one of the institutions. Mm-hmm, I see. Is it still? Ultimately. Yes. It is still yeah, a that department. One is- that one is, is a successful, successful department. Right. Yeah, but in general, they don't become depart- They don't become history right. and anthropology and chemistry and anything right. like that. Uh, right. is, did, did they intend to become those things, or actually, the intentions are not always so clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the students don't understand very much about institutional structures. They don't really care if it's a department. <laughs> they just want to major in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, They didn't didn't worry about that too much. The faculty sometimes were not even so sure they believed in having a major in it. 
they just wanted to get to teach the classes and the stuff that they were interested in and have mm-hmm. more resources go in that direction and maybe ultimately to some extent have a department because that's how they can ensure their own institutionalization and ongoing legitimacy. Mm-hmm. But if we actually look overall at the discipline, if the people who were active at the disciplinary level at those times, they were sometimes very, very reluctant to think about creating departments. For instance, in women's studies, there was really a fear that if we create departments or majors in women's studies, what we're doing is we're ghettoizing the study Mm -hmm. of women rather than infusing the study of women into everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So in a sense that the, the, the intention was to, to, to bring together a, a, a broad number of scholars from a broad number of disciplines to, to study X, in this case, some, right. some, some, um, some demographic group, I guess, if we can say right. that, right. that sort of generally speaking. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the relative success and failure of these movements, you, the three that you talk about. And mm-hmm. in general, I think we can say that they were all pretty remarkably successful. I mean, that, that especially women's studies – has, right. It's everywhere now, isn't it? I mean, is there any place that yeah. doesn't have women's studies? I... Yeah, there are still institutions that don't have women's studies. I have some quantitative data that I talk about in the book. It's not perfect. It's something I'm still working on. But in the sample of institutions that I have, biased a bit towards um, more elite and more well-known institutions, about three-quarters of them offer at least a minor in women's studies today. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's not everybody, um, and it is more well-represented among more elite institutions, more liberal arts-focused institutions, rather than professionally oriented. But even some community colleges offer women's studies programs now. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there are programs that produce uh, people who have a, a PhDs that are sort of branded right. as women's studies, don't, aren't there? Right, exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, then the second most successful, I guess, would be Asian-American right. studies. And, and what percentage of institutions in your sample have Asian-American studies? About 10% of them have Asian-American studies. There's still some degree of geographical concentration there. Um, I suspect that it's not the case that having more Asian-Americans actually leads you to be more likely to have Asian-American studies, but mm-hmm. if there are none. Mm-hmm you're not going to have a demand for that kind of program. So there are many parts of the country in which there are, there are still very few Asian, Asian American students, mm-hmm. and therefore there hasn't been that, that kind of an interest in developing the program. Mm-hmm. But in those places where it has developed, it has done very well. And there are graduate degrees, usually not in Asian American studies, but in ethnic studies mm-hmm. at a number of institutions in which students who are interested particularly in Asian American studies can get training in that specific field. Mm-hmm. I see. And so then the third and the most recent of these would be uh, queer studies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. That has, that has not um, been as institutionalized. There is only about, I would say that there are less than three institutions in the country in which you can major mm-hmm. in queer studies. I see. There are a lot of minors. Um, probably actually about 10% of institutions have minors, but there are, there are no majors really to speak of, and there's no graduate training specifically in that field. Mm-hmm. Now, the ideas of queer studies have percolated very, very far, and I mean, most um, graduate English departments and uh, social science departments will be addressing these kinds of issues, but mm-hmm. there, there's not that same kind of idea that you can be trained in queer studies to teach queer studies somewhere where there's a major in it. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, now, we've talked about cases in which there have been uh, movements and they have been allied or supported by faculty members and right. the administration gets on board and maybe there's some external money that comes in and they're successful. What percentage, can you talk a little about cases that failed where, where, where there were advocates for these things at particular institutions um, and, and they just didn't get enough traction and they died? Yeah. Um, there were a number of the cases that I looked at where that happened. Um, the, in, my argument is that where that happens is largely because the advocates, the activists who are trying to make this happen don't operate in a way that's optimized to the environment in which they find themselves. Mm -hmm. So different administrations and different campuses are going to be receptive to different kinds of messages. One of the ways in which queer studies 
movements often fell short in looking at my cases is that the people who were advocating for them most strongly were, were people coming from student affairs staff backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And administrative apparatus is not very interested in curricular programs that come from student affairs. <laughs> <laughs> not, they're just yeah. not seen as a legitimate yeah. operator in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So if they had been able to get, uh, if faculty had been more on board, if students had been more active, um, I think that those those movements would have had a much greater chance of succeeding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So um, let me ask a, 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 bro- a broader question and, and one that um, I guess I neglected to act, ask earlier. Why the 60s? What, what happened then? And, and what's in the back of my mind, and I think we should talk a little bit about this, is that I can... I can think of another cohort of students that self-identified in a kind of, um, eth- let's say it's ethnic way that entered academia, and and I don't think that they mounted any sort of campaign uh, or their advocates to create uh, interdisciplinary anything. And that, I'm thinking of Jews uh, in, the, in the 1950s and 1960s, and they entered in great numbers, and particularly in some schools. But I don't. They didn't. Right. Uh, they didn't say, well, you know, we have to have a Jewish studies department, even though there are lots and lots of Jewish studies departments right. now, uh, but they usually tend to be slightly different in character right. than institutes. And that's actually one of the, the interesting things about Jewish studies as a case is the fact that in many of the institutions in which Jews were coming in in the 50s, they did already have Jewish studies, but yeah, it was something did. for people who wanted to understand religion. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I read, I can't unfortunately remember quite where, but I recently read an article that was talking about the difference between that Jewish studies and some other kind of Jewish studies that mm-hmm. there's an interest in now that's actually about the identity. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that coming into institutions in the 50s is an era of conformity. Yeah. Um, the, the Jewish students who were able to be successful in winning admission to elite institutions had had to fend with quotas that tried to limit their presence mm-hmm. and were really expected to fit into a particular mold of an institution that had been set several decades earlier to be a place for the upper-class sons of the white northern elite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were supposed to fit into that and saying, hey, let's do all kinds of new things that you don't think are academically legitimate probably wouldn't have been the best way to Mm -hmm. (laughs) succeed in Mm -hmm. that environment. But in the 60s, in the midst of all of the other kinds of protests that was going on, protesting about this stuff, too, did not seem nearly as strange to mm-hmm. the people who participated in it. And, in fact, some of the activists that I interviewed specifically talked about that, how they were at institutions, at one of my institutions in particular, it was like they had sit-ins there like every week. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration, but that's kind of the way that the student felt in remembering it. Mm-hmm. It was nothing new to have a protest. So <laughs> you want something? Have a protest about it. Why not? A teach-in. Have a teach-in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that, those were the days. Uh, so, I mean, I, mean, I, th- I find that explanation c- compelling. It seems as if the 1950s, in the case of Jews, for example, it was kind of a keep your head down and you can assimilate. Right. Whereas in the 1960s, uh, the signal was uh, you can put your head up and you don't have to assimilate because we're going to find right. a means to recognize you here on campus and it's going to be some sort of studies department, something studies department. Right. Um, and in the years since then, even when pressure has been to assimilate, students who are not comfortable with that can always look back to the 60s and say, wait, there's another way to think about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was going to ask, you know, we live in a more conservative time today, I think we do at least. Uh, has the pressure to produce these uh, new sorts of interdisciplinary programs, uh, has, it, has it lessened? Is it harder to start them today? Are they, have any of them closed? There has been a lot of closing of programs. Many public um, edu- public higher education institutions have been required to undergo curriculum reviews where any program that's not producing a, su- a sufficient quantity of degrees is uh-huh. closed. And yes, we, in we, some we, cases, we, I was going to say we had that here at Iowa a couple of years yeah. ago. So, yeah. Yeah, in some cases, these programs have not been producing sufficient number of degrees. Many students are very concerned about what the degree says on their transcript, and mm-hmm. even if they take many courses in women's studies, they might not want that to be what their degree says, mm-hmm. which is always one of the things that, that's kind of strange about these budget processes. It only matters what the degree says. It doesn't matter how many people are taking the courses. Right, yeah. Um, so there have been closures, and it probably is 
somewhat more difficult to move forward because of the budgetary issues. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there have been a number of institutions that have started newer programs um, in more recent years. Even during the periods of tough budget times, there have been institutions in which this conti- you know, these efforts do continue and new programs uh, do emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really very interested in the... Uh... And one of the things that comes out of your study is very clear is that is really the, the demand-driven nature of this stuff and how economics is so very important to it. Because uh, we like to think, you know, here here I am in the ivory tower. Actually, it's not ivory, but it's brick. And, and you know, I like to think, well, you know, we just pursue knowledge. That's what we do. You know, and, uh, that, that's all I do. You know, if no students came, I'd still pursue knowledge. I'd pursue this kind of knowledge. But you know what? If there's nobody to pay for it, <laughs> you're right. not going to be pursuing any knowledge. Um, and right. one of the questions I had for you is that, that – uh, that each of these three disciplines that you talk about has undergone a kind of, um, I, I would almost say it's a rebranding in, in order to uh, attract students. So, for example, uh, it started as women's studies. It was called women's studies, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it depends actually on the institution. In one of my cases, they started out trying to call it feminist studies, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. But... And, and it wasn't the students that prompted the change. It was that the administration thought that sounded too ideological. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they, they, for the most part, it, it's been called women's studies mm-hmm. in most places. Right, but it's not, it's, not, it's not called that anymore here. Or I don't think yeah, it is. Yeah, a lot of places I, call it gender studies. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is. I can't really remember. But a lot, yeah. in, in many cases, it's called something like gender studies or even sexuality yeah. studies. Why, why did that, do you know why that change occurred? I, did actually a kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon. There are even women's colleges that have changed their women's studies programs to gender studies, <laughs> yeah. which I think is kind of a particularly odd. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> if, you're, if you're a co-ed institution and you change it to gender studies, perhaps you do that because you would like to have some males take your classes. Mm-hmm. But um, at the women's colleges, that doesn't <laughs> seem yeah, to make no, as much yeah. sense. But they, they do do that. And that there's a couple of things going on. Some of it is the, the increasing palatability to certain groups of students. Students today are not as aware of the presence of gender inequality in the world. They look at data like the fact that college-educated uh, women are doing better than men of similar ages because men don't go to college as much. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they think, therefore, there's equality. And so why should we look just at women? The thing that's interesting is how gender works overall. Mm-hmm. And it's also the case that the faculty and the scholars that are working in this area have had their interest shift. There's much less work on, here's the history of women. Mm-hmm. Here's the literature written by women. We've kind of figured out what those things were in most cases. And so the scholarship has become um, you know, more perhaps more innovative in a lot of ways to, to actually come up with interesting questions rather than simply address, as important as this was, the absence mm-hmm. of women. Mm-hmm. And those things, those more interesting questions, are often about gender rather than about women. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, there's, there was a kind of a, I mean, when you, when, you, when you start to put things like uh, women's studies under the category of gender, you have the broader category of gender. That's a pretty big tent. And then it can include things like uh, transsexuality and bisexuality and uh, homosexuality because you're talking about people who uh, sort of identify themselves uh, in, a, in a different way. And, and, the, and I think that the, these programs start to cannibalize one another, don't they? There is a little bit of that. And I do look at that at, um, to some extent I look at instances where there are women's studies programs that do also incorporate a substantial amount of coursework on queer issues. Mm -hmm. But oddly, that's not as prevalent as we might think. Most of gender studies and women's studies programs now, at least at institutions that are not very religious, Mm -hmm. do offer some coursework related to queer issues, Mm -hmm. but not in, in a lot of cases, not even as many as four courses. Mm-hmm. When you see things like sexuality studies, it sounds like, oh, here's where we're going to find all this stuff about queer identities. Mm-hmm. But that's not even necessarily true. It'll yeah. be, it'll be um, a course about the expression of women's sexuality in literature, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? which is much 
it's about all kinds of things, but yeah. it's, it's not sexuality studies often is, does not mean that it's actually going to look at the full diversity of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, again, the, the big tent can be somewhat problematic because right. if, if you include, uh, uh, so you're going to study, you're going to have gender studies and you're going to study, okay, so there are, there are two genders and then there's ones that mix the two, but the one that's right. not represented is, is there masculinity studies? Is there that- is masculinity studies. It's, um, it's a kind of an interesting field because it's going in two directions at once. So you have people who are doing masculinity studies because they're actually really interested in the social dynamics of masculinity. Um, there's, a, there's a sociologist by the name of Kemmel, K-I-M-M-E-L. He looks at some of this kind of stuff. He's looked at um, masculinity in sports. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you also have people, and sometimes they call this men's studies rather than masculinity <laughs> studies, studies yeah. right? Which, where it, it starts to really be pretty clear that it exists because they have women's studies, and we should yeah, have that too. That's not a good reason for something to exist. Sorry, that was just right. me editorializing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, men's studies. It sounds like men's magazines, you know? Like, well, exactly. That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> So I, I wanted to, yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be problematic if you were, uh, you know, trying to carve a niche out in an institution or a career out in yourself. Exactly what do you study and where does it fall? Because gender and LGBT and, and, and uh, gay studies right. and sexuality studies and, you know, these things get quite mixed up as opposed to something like history where we study the past. Right. You know, that, that's right. pretty and, and actually one of the other difficulties there is as the field becomes more amorphous, it's harder to make intellectually sound claims about yeah. why it exists. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. opposed to everybody studying these things in their own discipline. And it's kind of interesting because it occurs at the same time as we have an overall move in many institutions to encourage interdisciplinary research. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yet somehow there's something unsettling about the idea of this interdisciplinary thing that isn't explaining why it exists. Whereas mm-hmm. at the roots of these fields, there's a very strong intellectual justification that went well beyond just remedying the absence. Sure. There was a, like women's studies had a very strong set of perspectives about what it had to offer as mm-hmm. a new way of thinking mm-hmm. about intellectual questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I think that's right. And then another tendency that I've seen in my own career, which spans, I, I hate to say it, almost 25 years now, uh, is, is that, uh, you know, when I went, by the time I got to graduate school and I went to a kind of a, a liberal program, um, in, in almost every class I took, there there was there was something about women. Let's put it that way. And I'm an early right. modernist, so you know it's kind of so. So in a sense, I I was trained to do this in my classes as a matter of right. course. And so then I have to ask myself, well, what's the point of having something separate if I already do it? Right, right. And that yeah. is one of the questions that people do start to ask about these fields. And in some way, that that original goal that women's studies had of making sure that people paid attention to gender. Uh, well, I don't think it has been fully achieved. It has certainly gotten quite far. It, mm-hmm. You you can't you couldn't publish an introductory sociology textbook that didn't address yeah. the experiences of women today, which you certainly could in the '60s. But um, that does this is always a problem with with social movement organizations that there is this desire to preserve the life of the organization, and there's also a desire to reach the goals of the organization. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't have both of those things equally. Right. Yeah, you just want to, yeah. yeah, I created this, I want to preserve it, versus um, it is of great value, so we should preserve it. Right. Yeah, yeah. so I, I see what you mean. So I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the third category, and that is Asian American. Now, I tell, right. I tell my students uh, in, in as many classes as I possibly can that, Historically speaking, Asia is an absurd category. Yeah. Because it just, there are really a lot of different kinds of people in Asia, and they have nothing to do with one another, really. Uh, in fact, they often hate each other. Yes, right. So, I mean, really, it's a tough category. Right. Um, so, so, how do, uh, I, I guess these are Asians who have come to America, but still, even right. among those, they're just right. tremendously this different. That's one of the, the really interesting things about this field. So first of all, you have the the distinction between Asian studies and Asian American studies. And that's one that many people have a lot of trouble with to begin with. Um, We would not find that we had the same trouble in other parts of the world. People Mm -hmm. would very clearly be able to understand the difference between African studies and African American studies. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that's very distinct about the experience of Asian Americans 
is that it's this idea of being the forever foreigner mm-hmm. that you can't quite ever really be American. So um, one of the first tasks that Asian American activists had was to actually say, no, there is something different about our experience than Asian studies. We don't want to come and study Chinese. We are not interested in going back to China. We live here. We're American. We were born here. And we want to look at the experience of being an Asian in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And um, that is that's a, a different sort of experience. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, historically, um, Asian Americans, even after immigration, they did see themselves as very distinct populations that did not have much to do with each other. Even today, immigrant parents will sometimes discourage their children from marrying a person of a different ethnic background who is identified as Asian. Mm-hmm. But during the, the period after the 1965 immigration reforms, Americans started to see Asians as this racial group. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a great book about this called uh, Asian American Panethnicity, and it's, panethnicity is this notion that we lump a bunch of ethnic groups together into mm-hmm. one broader thing. And so that, that Asian American identity kind of got imposed on a group and then got claimed by the group of these American-born children who wanted to say, this is who we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. I know, I know when I was at this graduate school that there, was, there were protests by Asian students, and they were protesting what they called the notion of the Asian model minority myth. Right. Um, right. Yeah, and this was, this was a big thing, and, and uh, I did not understand it, really. I, I mean, I did later when they explained it, what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, I was from Kansas, so what the hell did I know? Um, right. Although I will say an interesting thing about Iowa, the University of Iowa, where we are now, is where I am now, is that uh, there are a lot of Asian students on on campus, but they're from China. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah. They, they're Asian, <laughs> like really Asian. Right. Yeah. Right. So. And that was that was another one of the the difficulties that these students had too, because that there were in part the model minority myth, but in general there are a lot of stereotypes about what Asian and Asian American students should be doing, what they should be interested in, um, and that does not include the humanities. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so. Right. These are students who are saying we have a history, we have a literature, and we want to talk about those things. And other people saying, "But aren't you supposed to be good at math?" Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, right, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. My, my wife is a mathematician, and uh, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. You know, right, that's exactly. how I can tell you. Like everybody, we uh, all yeah. we're all very so, different. Yeah. So, in any event, um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that it it. it, it it, you may not be able to answer these questions, but I'm interested in knowing a little bit about, uh, again, as a historian, how American this thing is. Have, have these sorts of programs migrated? They migrated very quickly all over the United States, or at least in, in one case they did. Uh, yes. have, have they gone overseas? Yes. Um, there is, especially for women's studies, um, there are programs in Canada, in Europe, uh, in Latin America, Australia. It's absolutely spread all over the place. Mm-hmm. In some cases, the institutional structures of universities elsewhere in the world actually make this somewhat easier even. Um, in many parts of Europe, the way that a graduate degree works is that a faculty member says, okay, I'm interested in this. Who wants to be my graduate student? And mm-hmm. then you study that thing yep. uh, rather than necessarily having to have a department of it. Uh-huh. Um, so that's in some ways facilitated some of that study elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Asian-American studies it's a different kind of case because it's, it's about being Asian American as opposed mm-hmm. to it, it, it could exist. It can exist to some extent in Canada. Asian, Asian Canadian studies would be a thing, but mm-hmm. um, it, it hasn't spread the same way mm-hmm. because it, it can't. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think, I mean, I know a lot about Russia, I suppose, and some European places, and I'm trying to think how this would play. I, I don't know if there's Turkish studies in Germany. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, don't I think know. there's a, sort of some beginning echoes of that. It's the thing is, in order for this kind of thing to happen, you do have to have enough people in higher education who are interested in it. Mm-hmm. And in countries where higher education is much more heavily stratified, mm-hmm immigrant or indigenous populations are not as necessarily as likely to find their way into the sorts of institutions in which yeah. the liberal arts are studied. Yeah, no, that's right. And in, in, many, in many places, they just don't have the liberal arts. I mean, I, right. in, in Germany, <laughs> they do the liberal arts in high school, and then once you go right. to university, it's, that's something else. Um, right. 
one of the things that is not in your book, and I, I think it's probably because you just can't do everything, um, but it is a presence here on our campus and on a lot of campuses, Latino studies. Right, yeah. Uh, and, and would that be a sort of case in point that you could... Yeah, that about? would be probably the fourth case if yeah, there were four. Uh-huh, ex- exactly. Do you know anything about the origins of that? I, is it also uh, yeah, 19, a little late bit. 1960s? Um, it, it was a pretty similar story in the early 70s. Um, mostly began to emerge in California as well. Um, it was, and the movements for Latino cities were very connected to political movements. The, the La Raza Party, mm-hmm. for instance, yeah. was really interested in uh, coming onto campus and building knowledge about mm. Latino history. Um, they also, that field also has a similar problem in terms of the immigrant population versus mm-hmm. the continent. So you have Latin American studies, and does that mean we're studying Latin America, or does that mean we're studying, you know, Latin Americans? Mm-hmm. Like, and um, so that's been a, a, a bit of a, a, comp- a complexity. The difference is that there's a lot more circular migration between the United States and at least Central American countries. Mm-hmm. And so, especially now, um, so people don't necessarily develop identities that are quite as distinct. And so Latin American studies has become very interested in globalization and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I see. So, uh, you know, our time is almost up, but I want to ask you a couple of more questions. This is fascinating. Um, as someone who's watched it for the last 25 years, not really participated <laughs> in it, but, but watched it, the, um, and someone who actually doesn't, I don't really have strong opinions about these things, I'll admit. Uh, the, the, um, uh, I think people should study what they want and what they're interested yeah. in. The, um, so, so I know many of my colleagues will, will think I'm a fool for that, but that's what I think. So what do you see as the future of these programs? You know, that's a, it's a tough question. It has to something to do with the future of higher education overall. Um, there, we're in this very particular moment now, I think even more so than a couple of years ago, where we can see this struggle between the professional and vocational on the one hand and the liberal arts on the other. And the professional and vocational programs, they have this promise of quick education for a good job, but if all the jobs keep changing, then what does that get you? Mm-hmm. So some people are really starting to argue much more clearly for the advantage of liberal arts training. Mm-hmm. If there is a resurgence of the liberal arts, then I think these kind of programs will be very well positioned because they are able to say, like, we have something really interesting. You can study, and in the meantime, you can get all those skills you're supposed to get from the liberal arts. But if we continue to move in a more vocationalized way, they will be among the earlier casualties because they have the hardest time explaining what the job is that you get with this training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good answer. And I, yeah, that's a, that's a very good answer. It's not something I'd really thought about. Uh, but in a way, it's consistent with your general theme that demand really matters a lot here and that, and that these institutions sort of serve a, a public and, and they, they, right. they, they bend to what that public wants, which is, again, it's not the way I usually think about the right. university. So, right. And there are some, some changes even within um, university education that affect this, too, because most students who, are, who ultimately do study these fields, they don't come to college thinking, I know I want to be a queer studies major. They probably haven't <laughs> even heard of queer studies. So it's demand that develops only after you get there because of exposure to these ideas. Yeah. And if we change our general education programs in a way that decreases the flexibility of students' exposure to new ideas, uh-huh. then students will be less likely to ever figure out they wanted to study something different in the first place. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I mean, I, I think that's... I think that's right. I, I, you know, again, I, I guess if I have an opinion about it, I, I'm sort of let a thousand flowers bloom kind of guy. And, you know, really amazing things have been discovered uh, in, I think, all, all of these fields. Another question that occurs to me is that, you know, occasionally you'll, you'll find somebody who um, becomes famous for saying things that are outrageous. Actually, that's the right. – I used to work in, in journalism, and I can tell anybody who's interested in becoming famous, the best way to do it is say something outrageous. <laughs> uh, and, and I won't mention any names, but uh, David Horowitz. The, and I won't mention any names. So some people get, have, have made a pretty good living by uh, bashing these programs. Now, right. in my opinion, they've just basically lost this battle. Is that true? You think they've just lo- I think they've just lost. Um, I think that the battle has just moved on to other fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems sort of silly to be worrying about whether studying women is going to ruin the academy. Uh-huh in the times that we're in, regardless of whether you think it is or not. There's just like bigger fish out there to fry (laughs) than this particular issue. 
Um, but there are absolutely, I mean, David Horowitz does still continue to bash these fields, as, as do other people. Yeah. And there are some people now who have started to argue that if only we hadn't abandoned the canon, then maybe we would still have the laboratory yeah. and sort of try to retroactively blame yeah. uh, these fields for, mm. for that loss, which, you know, I, I, I think probably would have happened anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but uh, there, is, there is still quite a lot of criticism of these kinds of areas, and you can see that um, as well if you look at some of the congressional debates over research funding, that research in these sorts of areas is mm-hmm. o- often among the first where people will say, hey, why are we wasting government money studying, you know, people. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm reminded a little bit of something that I heard. This is with reference to your uh, statement about people saying, you know, we, we really should be very critical of, of people that, who study these fields, um, you know, or read deeply in them. I'm, remater, I'm reminded of something that James Patterson, the novelist or writer, James Patterson, he's, I, do you know who he is? He's yeah. like, he's like, yeah, right. He's like the, the bestselling, I mean, he sells more books than anybody. Right. And, and he, and, and he was being interviewed by somebody and and, and the interviewer, I think, asked him the question, uh, do you think some people feel guilty about reading your books? And Patterson said, why would anyone feel guilty about reading? Yeah. <laughs> that was just right. brilliant. <laughs> yeah, right. That was just totally brilliant. But, I mean, it seems to me, why would anyone feel guilty about studying? You know, people are right. studying. Isn't that a good thing? I, you know, right. Right, yeah. So, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm – I'm, at least that's my opinion. You know, any way you can get there, that's what I say. Any way you can yeah. get there. So uh, in, anyway, it, it's been um, absolutely a pleasure to talk to you today, Michaela. And, uh, you know, we've about run out of time, but I wanted to save a moment to ask our uh, traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on actually a, a project that's, that's still coming from this same data. Um, and I'm, I'm going back to look quantitatively at those market and peer pressure kind of forces to see if they might have something to say about the spread of the field. In mm-hmm. the book, I look at how a program emerges in a particular context, but that is that's fairly limited in terms of its ability to explain the spread that mm-hmm. we've seen, especially of women's studies. And so I'm, I'm trying to develop an understanding of that by looking at um, a data set of about 1,300 colleges and universities in the United States and Canada. Um, and I have the, the really cool thing about this is that I have information about their peers. Every mm-hmm. institution has to say what its own peers are for accreditation purposes. And so I can look at whether if your peer institutions offer a program, does that make you more likely to adopt it yourself? Mm-hmm. I, love that. I love those big data sets. I really do. Plug yeah. them into SPSS and just go wild. Correlations yeah. of everything. Yeah, I mean, yep. it's, very, it's very satisfying. I don't think many of my colleagues like it, but I've done it, and it's really – you find things yeah. – you find new facts. You find things you did yeah. not know, uh, yeah. you know in, in the numbers. So I, I, I'm envious, and I wish you luck with that project. And again, I, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Michaela Lamonic-Arthur about her book, Student Activism and Curricular Change in Higher Education. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History – I hope you have a great week.